Why did the Fed raise rates and why is it such a big deal? I'm Monica Perez and this is today's Deep Dive. Here's today's diving board. It's a front page article from the Wall Street Journal. Top story right on the front page. The Fed sets biggest rate rise since 1994. So the Fed raised rates three quarters of a point to range between one and a half percent and 1.75 percent. And they expect to keep raising the rates until some estimates are three 0.75% by the end of 2023. That's what they say, but they haven't been very accurate in what they've been saying. So that's why the market really didn't know how to respond. At first, they rallied on Wednesday, probably because there was supposed there was some clarity in the information. Powell said this would be an unusually high rate raise, although he did feel like it may be another whole three quarters of a percent at their next meeting in July. But for some reason, the market liked it on Wednesday and hated it on Thursday. So I don't know what it'll do today, but it was up and then down again. So there's a lot of volatility there. People are worried. I think for me, what I think happened was they were happy with the clarity, but then it sank in that really they're probably going to get a recession, which doesn't surprise me at all. And I'm going to tell you what that means to us. And the reason I'm even like going to go down this path, because there's tons of people who are really, really great at the finance stuff. They have podcasts about finance. They write about it. It's I'm no expert in this area at all. I do have some credentials and I used to be a lot better at it. I had my undergrad major was economics. I have a JD MBA. I was an investment banker and a commercial banker, actually. And also, I'm a chartered financial analyst. So that's all by way of saying, like, I do have the credentials. I'm not just really talking out my butt, but I'm totally rusty. I don't do this for a living at all. And I haven't for a really long time. So I actually feel like this is a discussion that makes sense to have. Because I'm a layman at this point. Like, I really don't have any expertise. I don't follow it regularly. I'm just a person, a taxpayer and a citizen who's affected by all this. And if a regular person can't understand it, then he can't authorize his government to do it. The government's just an extension of your own rights. Your own, it's, and really, it all seems like the right to self-defense to agree on, uh, Mutual defense is basically the essence, I think, of what people argue makes government legitimate. And we have a constitutional government. We have a foundational documents that lay out the scope of the government. And it's quite simple. You can read it and understand it. You don't need a PhD in economics to understand it. The Fed, which is ginning this stuff up, is not in the Constitution. So this is something that really, if we can't understand it, They should not be allowed to do it. But I think I understand the basics enough to explain them in a simple way. And it's funny because my son, who's pretty savvy, he's 16 and he likes the newspaper. He's always liked the newspaper. I hate the newspaper, but he's always liked it to the point where I have a picture of him when he's a little kid. The Wall Street Journal was laid out on the kitchen table and he had to lay on top of it to read the top of the article, so much so that his feet didn't even touch the chair he was sitting on. I have no idea how, but he was, I can't even believe he could read. 
And I used to think it was a weather map that he was looking at, but I went back and looked at the newspaper and it was like a story about a car show or something. It was really impressive. So this kid reads the newspaper. So when he woke up this morning and sat down and he asked me what that headline meant and what were the implications and why it was affecting the stock market, I thought, wow, like your average person might not be able to follow this. And I tried to explain it to him. And I think I did a pretty good job. So I'm going to try to do the same. And the reason it matters to us, the reason it's even worth our time does affect things like it affects your 401k. I mean, I just like that stuff freaks me out. Because like I said, I have the credentials, but I'm I just don't follow it. I'm not good at that stuff. I, I think I'm too I overthink these kind of things. So it just upsets me and I don't feel like there's anything you can do about it. I don't think it's always great to be a contrarian in the market. I think sometimes these guys know, I mean, they, you can't beat a guy at his own game. I always feel like the 401k is the dumb money that used to be like most of the money in the market was the pension fund. So like the regular laborer was also the capitalist. And I loved that. And then they moved it to 401k, which felt very liberating. But you went from being the smart money to being the dumb money. And it's days like today that make you feel that way or yesterday. So it it can have an impact on your 401k, but it also has an impact on home values. It has, and that of course would translate to an impact on rent. And then it also, if it really does head into a recession, has an, an impact on your earnings on your ability to make an income. So this whole thing, I feel like, has been a long time coming. And I remember, and if you were listening to my show for a while, you'll remember that in the fall of 2019, I think it was a WSB show I did, I had noticed that there's a lot of talk about it being the longest expansion in U.S. history. And I remember Dean kind of slapped me down, tweeted at me, and was like, you know, they really fudge the numbers. That's not the right way to look at it. And... And they did. Like, it, there were a lot of funny things about that expansion. But let's just say it was a 10-year expansion since the last recession. And that means that you're kind of due for a recession. They sold us the whole Fed system as saying, like, it's a cure to the boom-bust cycle. And all we've had since then is a boom-bust cycle, which is pretty predictable. Eight to 10 years, maybe, of an expansion and one or two years of recession. Sometimes they're closer together, sometimes not. But what is always true about that boom-bust cycle and what the Fed really does is they go in there and when there's a recession, they lower rates. And when there's an expansion, they're supposed to let rates climb back up again. And I looked at all the rates, go, all the recessions going back, I don't know, since the Fed started 100 years ago, basically. And you could see that when there's a recession, they reduced rates by, I think, like, usually around seven percentage points. So they would have like a 9% rate or a 12% rate and they'd lower it over the recession to five percentage points or, or 5%, like down seven percentage points. I think maybe the least I noticed was five percentage points, but even I think it was even more than that. And that was that last one, 2008. So I noticed that if you were averaging a 7% rate cut to get out of recession, and we were about to head into a recession, I noticed that our interest rate, they had never really expanded the interest rate during the last expansion because the last expansion was just, was kind of artificial. I think this is what Dean's point was. It was just this limping along of the economy fueled by really low interest rates so that there was a phenomenon called zombie companies that couldn't even make 
interest payments with their profits. They had to like refinance debt and they were always dependent on ever lower debt financing. And it was just not a healthy economy at all. And they couldn't, they never wanted to bite the bullet and raise the rates and point out that they never solved that 2008 financial crisis, which Ben Bernanke and those guys took a lot of credit for. But it always looked like a can kick to me. So when I saw in 2019 that interest rates were at 2% and that we were at the 10-year mark of an expansion, I was like, what are they going to do? What are they going to do if people still can't expand, still can't grow? They're going to have some kind of collapse and this going into an election year. And I actually thought they wanted Trump to win. And I thought they could maybe get kick the can for another year if they could lower those 2% interest rates all the way back down to zero again. But it would be really hard to justify. And if there were like a debt collapse, that would be okay. In some respects, like there's this thing called creative destruction, where if a company is not not worthwhile, it should go bankrupt. And then you free up the labor, the capital, even the money to like other companies that actually can make it make value out of that. It's called creative destruction. But if you keep lowering rates so that a company never goes bankrupt, but it really can't make any money, that's called a zombie company. And they just limp along tying up a lot of money and you can never really have a good innovative expansion. But the powers that be don't want to have that that creative destruction cycle because their money, their cronies, whatever, are the ones who are tied up in that. And and furthermore, when you have a currency that's based on debt, we have a debt-based currency. It's like shocking and weird. And it's a little hard to get my mind around, but it's a debt-based currency. So if you have a bunch of bankruptcies and debt goes away, you actually have like this deflationary spiral, which deflation or at least like not inflation is good because it means your prices are going down. But it can be very disruptive if everything goes bankrupt at once. You have a lot of unemployed people and um, production gets interfered with. And whether they were doing it for our own good or to save their own butts, it doesn't matter. They did not want a really out of control, massive amount of bankruptcies, which is what they should have had because they had been fostering this poor investment for so long. But in 2019, a crisis loomed. I saw it. There was problems in the repo market, which I don't, I don't, didn't really focus on that, so I can't explain it at this time. But I noticed there. I went back and looked at articles from 2019 saying these zombie companies are a real threat to our economy. There are debt crises looming around the globe. I don't know what we're going to do. And I just really puzzled aloud, definitely on the WSB show, like what were they going to do to kick the can for the next year until the election. And then COVID happened. I was like, okay. I, I, I even mentioned right away, like in April of 2020, I said, if somebody woke up out of a coma and saw what our policies were right now, they would think we had a debt crisis or a financial crisis, not a health crisis. That's what everything was all about. It was just seemed to me an excuse to print money. It was stimmy checks. It was business subsidies. It was just t- just this fiscal and monetary inflation. So they spent the money and then they issued government debt to pay for it. And that increases the money supply. This COVID gave them the excuse to print money, the money that they had been wanting to print for so long to kind of reinflate 
what was essentially a long, slow debt collapse. That's the way I look at it. But I mean, people who know more about this, I maybe have differing opinions or can put some more nuance there. But that's what I understand it to be. And it's I, I think it's valid to have an opinion when you're affected by it and they're doing it really in your authority. So they also, another thing, so I don't think they got enough inflation out of it because this probably is a major reason for all that supply chain nonsense. I've been talking about it for the longest time. The initial COVID supply chain interruption went away and then they just started ginning it up again with these perfect storms. That has continued to put pressure on prices and inflation. And that in turn is giving them the excuse to raise those rates so they're not in that zero or 2% rate environment and they can have some wiggle room so they can keep their boom bust cycle going forever. And what would have happened if they had to just admit that 10 years into an expansion, they just didn't have the interest rate to keep it going and they'd ha- they were going to collapse the economy, they could collapse the economy and call it an act of God. And they completely retain their own reputation, belief in their Keynesian economics, and they don't have to answer for it. It's terrible. I'm really not happy about it, and uh, but they're doing it. And it really irritates me because I saw it coming two years ago. I <laughs> like that that's what they were doing uh, with the COVID thing. So that's like what I think is the very big picture of of why they were doing all of this. But the fact remains that it affects us. I mean, this is real. Just like so many of the things they gin up, it has a real effect on us. Traditionally, this is how a cycle like this works. I want to explain it to you from the perspective of a homeowner or someone who wants to buy a home. So I want to buy a home. I've been waiting for prices to correct. Although when prices correct, you don't know if the interest rates are going to be high, if that's why prices are correcting, if you're going to be able to afford the mortgage. So let me tell you how from a homeowner's perspective, how this will affect us and then like what the ripple effects of that are. So when the Fed raises rates, borrowing costs rise for businesses and homeowners. There are a lot of times the interest rates are based on Fed rates or in any case, it just flows throughout the economy. If if the Fed rate is 1%, which it was not that long ago, and say mortgages are maybe 3% above that. It's probably a little bit less right now or it was, but let's just say if the Fed rate's 1% and you're paying 4% for a mortgage, then the spread is 3%. If you make $200,000 a year in that environment, uh, and it's like an expansionary environment, they may let you just put 10% down on a house, you would qualify at 200 grand a year, you'd qualify for a million dollar house. And you'd put $100,000 down. And your mortgage at 4% would be $4,300 a month. So I just ran it through a calculator. I put that in the show notes, like the mortgage calculator. I just like, how much would you have to make to qualify for a million-dollar house under these circumstances? If the Fed rate goes up to 6%, which historically is not a crazy number, I mean, I don't think they're, they're, they're not talking about that right now. They'd have to really increase rates rapidly to get that done over the next whatever 18 months. So there's just no way they're doing 6 months by the end of 20 6% by the end of 2023. But let's just use a big example so that you can really understand how it would flow. So if the Fed rate goes up to 6%, which would actually still be low by historical standards, and the spreads would widen a little bit because as things get a little riskier than the riskier stuff, a mortgage is riskier than a Fed note or whatever, you would have to pay a little bigger spread. So say the spread's 4% instead of 3%, that's a 10% mortgage. Not unheard of. 
maybe historically 7% was more in line, but it's not unheard of. The down payment also, though, would go up because you have a riskier environment. Interest rates go up, bankruptcies go up. So now you're paying 20%. For $200,000 in that new environment, you only qualify for a $750,000 home. So you put 150 down and you're still pay, you're paying a $7,000 a month mortgage in this high rate environment. So you have less of a home, assuming the prices haven't corrected yet, although they're already starting to correct. You have less of a home. You have less money in the bank because you needed a bigger down payment. But you're paying such a high rate that your mortgage rate is so high that it's really absorbing a lot of your extra spending. So where it used to be $4,300 a month, your mortgage, now it's $7,000 a month for a lesser house. So at this point, you might not even want to buy that home. And that's like perfect. The World Economic Forum, the Davos people really love that. They did, they're the ones who said, like, I own nothing and I'm happy. That's, this is definitely going to feed into that. But if you do buy it, you have less money in the bank and you have less take-home pay. So what do you do? You spend less at the store. Let's say Target. You spend less at Target. Now, during the time when rates were low, Target opened a bunch of different stores in a lot of different places because the cost of opening those stores of build out and the mortgage and everything were very low. But when rates go up, they start tightening their belts and now you're spending less at Target. So Target's going to close some of those stores they just opened because they're underperforming in this new environment. And that's true. It's already happening. Retail spending is down already because of inflation, but the interest rates exacerbate the impact on stores. So get this, though. You're, you're an accountant for Target. That's what your job is. And it's not like it doesn't have to be this perfect storm. It's I'm just making a point. Like all the accountants and all the stores are going to be in less demand because there are less stores. There are less Targets, so they don't need as many accountants or uh, so they lay some of them off. Maybe you don't get laid off, but maybe you don't get your bonus that year. That's pretty normal too. And you can't just quit the job and start your own business because the business environment's bad and interest rates are up. So there's a problem now. And if the inflationary environment is still up there and with these global supply chain, food shortages, energy stuff, the war in Ukraine, all that stuff that clearly the big powers are promoting, they want this inflation. It's not just stimmy checks and business grants anymore. It's all this, these external shocks that they just keep delivering. So we might have inflation at the same time that people are losing their jobs. And that's stagflation. And that's when people start really hurting. And I remember it from the 70s, actually. I mean, I was a little, little kid, so it was just a blur. But yeah, I just, I remember it being bad times. I remember people moving out of the town to go to places that had jobs. A lot of people I knew, my older brothers and sisters moved to Colorado because they had like an energy boom there at the time. So people are poor. And then what happens from after that? The government, which always has the ability to borrow money, even if rates are very high, they don't seem to care. They're going to want to spend more on welfare. They're going to give you more services. They're going to, even if the welfare laws don't change, more people are going to be on the poverty level. But of course, the laws will change. Look at the Great Depression in the 30s. That was used as an excuse to usher in a ton of socialist policies. It totally transformed this country. So what happens then? So then you have 
you have more deficit spending, you have higher debt that continues to pressure interest rates. So it will prolong the agony, which is what happened in the Great Depression. I mean, I don't know if that specific pattern, but it prolonged the agony to have all these government policies. You know, I almost think they had to go out of their way to prolong that agony. But here's the thing. When you look at the World Economic Forum websites, you see that it always, 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 Rockefeller does this to Rockefeller Foundation. It's all about the poor. It's all about poverty. It's all about um, they're being oppressed. They're being gender discriminated. They're being racially discriminated. The food crisis uh, hurts the lowest among us the most, the energy prices, because they're a much bigger percentage of their income, of their spending. And yes, like I totally agree. All these things that the World Economic Forum and its cronies are instituting in the world is definitely from COVID policy to the war in Ukraine is increasing poverty for sure. But these guys live for that. And they talk about how Davos man needs to come to the rescue. And they go, Beyond that and say rich countries need to transfer money to the poor countries. We're already doing that. The Ukraine bill, last one, that like $30 billion one included food money for Africa because they're like, oh, it's all connected. Well, it's all connected. So stop doing it. And we won't be in that position. We're, we're not in that position anymore. Our debt is 138% of GDP. Like that is not a country that has money. That's a problem. We have a real problem. But the World Economic Forum's goal, and I do think they're behind, always behind pulling the strings, not necessarily the World Economic Forum, but that whole cabal, whether it's the Council of Foreign Relations or whatever consortiums of um, globalist corporations or whatever, their transformation of society to be a top-down, very few big players economy is always at the heart of what they do, what they promote. So they don't they don't approach these policies, their policy recommendations, because they want the best for us. They want the best for them. And this stuff feeds into that big picture uh, world kind of global control. Now, they do have enough dry powder to wait for the ebbs and flows like in the stock market. So the stock market crashes. And yeah, it's like terrifying if you've got a 401k. But these guys sometimes see this stuff coming. They take their money out. They have dry powder. And when the market crashes, they go in and buy it. So they're not too worried about short-term fluctuations in price. Even if things go bankrupt, they're not that worried about it because they're poised to benefit from it. But I did want to interject like just why stock prices fall. People either know this or they don't know this. I don't know. I'm just trying to hit on the stuff that my son asked me questions about because I thought he was a good litmus test of like your average Wall Street Journal reader or <laughs> budding, aspiring Wall Street Journal reader, let's say. All right. So the market reflects what it expects. And if it expects the returns on stocks to go down relative to other investments, then the price of the stocks is going to go down. So if they expect that as rates rise, Target will have to pay more debt service, like Target's debt, the same amount of debt will generate bigger payments out of their pocket at the same time that their revenue is going down because you're spending less, then all of Target's money is going to go to debt service and the surplus which would normally accrue to equity holders, there just won't be any of that. So the stock price is going to go down because there's no, there's no VIG. <laughs> there's no vigorous in there. So that's lower returns and that means lower stock prices. And at the same time, bonds, which I think have been in the longest bubble in uh, certainly in bond history, so an investor can buy stock, but they can also buy bonds. And the bonds are 
where the company is borrowing money. They don't necessarily go to Citibank and sign a loan with a loan officer. They can just go out into the market. And that's what I used to do. That was my bank. I used to do high-yield bonds, which I consider to be a very moral endeavor. <laughs> I'm not saying it doesn't go wrong, but I just thought it was good. Like I used to say a dollar... A dollar saved, a dollar lent, a dollar earned, a dollar spent, because you didn't have this fractional reserve banking multiplier. So I made that little poem up. I'm sure it was very popular in the high <laughs> yield bond. They thought I was a dork, but whatever. I was the only girl. So, okay. So you could shift some of your investments into issuing bonds because now Target, which you don't think is going to go bankrupt, that high yield bonds I used to work on, some of them did go bankrupt, but you'd just invest in a bunch of them so that you wouldn't really get uh, you'd still make some money. But if you don't think Target's going to go bankrupt, you just don't think that they're going to have much return. And I'm just making this up about Target. I have absolutely no idea what goes on at Target. But uh, I'm just making it up. So you, But you might lend debt to Target instead because all of a sudden this pretty good risk is paying 6% on its loans and it's, you know, you don't think you're going to get anything out of the equity, but you have the risk of really not having much equity. It's sooner going to go bankrupt on the equity side than on its debt side. So those two things conspire to kind of move money away from stocks and into bonds. And that's why you have these kind of market fluctuations. I mean, I'm just saying theoretically. Do your own research. Do your own homework. Like when the rubber hits the road, there are just too many variables. I am not good at picking stocks or anything like that. But I do think I understand the relationships, at least what the relationships were in the past. There's always a chance that there's a paradigm shift, that they introduce the digi-dollar and negative exchange, uh, negative interest rates, and they make you exchange your greenbacks for digi-dollars at a declining rate. Like, things could get freaky. But my understanding is that that's, you know, historically how it worked. And it does, like, freak me out. Like, I have a little 401k still from when I was in banking, and uh, I did terrible with it. And to the extent that I have any savings at all, like this in the market, it's just not not a very comfortable experience. But I mean, I try to think of what Warren Buffett said, like, if you think a company is going to be around in 20 years, if you think Target's going to be around in 20 years, don't panic. And like, that's the kind of stuff that's like a more a less risky investment. Uh, but for me, like, it's outrageous that the Fed goes in and messes around with this stuff. And the only reason they exist is because they promised that they were going to deal with the boom bust cycle. And they have absolutely simply exploited for their own benefit, in, in my opinion. And I think that because it's inherently unsound, they were going to, there's a couple of times, like they went off the gold standard in the early 70s. And by 1980, there's just a horrible financial situation. And they had to raise rates to double digits. And then now, like the Fed you know, overdid it, could not get its way out of that 2008 policy, which started in 2001. And it was just the Fed just kicking the can, kicking the can, and they would have had to take responsibility for it. But COVID happened. And I don't think that is any coincidence. And I just, I don't know how many more cycles like this they can do with this crazy high debt to GDP ratio. Uh, I just don't know. But in the end, like my takeaway, I think I heard Dennis Miller say this once, and I thought it was great. If you're worried about your financial situation or just if you have any surplus at all, like make sure, just make sure that you have your priorities straight, that you have stuff you might need. You know, if you're somebody who needs to stockpile toilet paper and beans, like if that's where you're at, like think think hard about it if that's what you want. Funny combination. <laughs> or maybe you're in a position where you want to get some silver or gold, like wherever you think 
your situation is to make you comfortable for kind of emergencies, because we're really talking about life and not just piles of money, which can just blow away in the wind. Just try to reprioritize and make sure you're prepared for that kind of thing. I, I like to do both of those things. I even bought a little Ethereum a while back just in case, and that didn't go so well. But just in case, like it could have gone the other way, you know, and you have a little bit of everything, a little bit of everything just to get you through. Maybe it's a week, maybe it's a month. Um, someone told me recently, like, you should also have a pile of cash. I was like, okay. I don't. I got the pile of cash, and then I spent the pile of cash. Then I bought another pile of cash, and then I spent that too. Anyway, so uh, so that's just my two cents. It's what I think as somebody who is trying to sort through what's going on and be an informed citizen of this country. I do feel like we have to. We can't shy away from things that are intimidating because they count on that. That's when they say trust the experts, trust the science. But I say it's up to you. Powell to make me understand what you're doing in my name with my money. <laughs> and if if you can't explain it to me, then I cannot authorize you to proceed. But if you listen to this show and you have a different opinion, I absolutely love to hear it. If you want to contribute to the conversation, I'm going to start, I'm going to see if people leave me comments on thepropreport.com. I put these posts every day on thepropreport.com. It's under the podcast tab and you can comment in the post and I will go back and read them. And if there's stuff that people have leave, I'll talk about it in the next deep dive. So let's try to do that. And then if you enjoyed the show, please share it on social media or share it with someone you think would also enjoy it. And feel free to tweet at me at Monica Perez show.